All right, good evening, everyone. How you guys doing? How's your week been so far? Super excited to be here with you guys, especially the fact that I can preach God's Word tonight is always an honor and a blessing, and I just love to do it. So, a grim scene greeted me on the chilly overcast morning last August when Tony Serrano, which is a, a farmer, took me to one of his strawberry fields. This is a, a, a journalist writing. Not far from Central the Central California coast. It looked like the entire field had been devastated by disease and drought. Surveying his crop, Serrano shook his head. I couldn't tell whether he was embarrassed or depressed. Leaves that had not already turned brown or were yellowing. Long sections of the farmland showed no signs of anything ever growing there, just bare plastic covering. Rotten, blackened fruits lay among invading weeds and lonely soil. What made the scene more poignant or excited or weird was that earlier in that day, I'd visited one of Serrano's other farms, a zucchini field. And it was half an hour drive and this field was immaculate. The plants were vigorous, covered in blossoms and heavy with squash in all stages of ripeness. A dozen workers loaded wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow with perfect deep green zucchini and rushed them through the rows to waiting a box truck. Serrano himself seemed like a different man, friendly, humorous, occasionally mischievous, with a smile that readily erupted from beneath his bushy mustache. So we have two seeds, right? We got a strawberry field that's rotten and a, and a, a zucchini field that's flourishing. One thing explained the stark difference between Serrano's two fields. Despite offering nearly twice for going the wages of a farmer, he had, unable, he had been unable to secure enough workers to tend. And when it came time to pick, he picked his shortage. He, he took those uh, workers to the zucchini crop. Why? Well, he had a contract with Costco that he needed to, mm -hmm. to uh, fulfill. But also, he needed to choose where he was going to put his workers. He couldn't afford... Well, he could afford it, but he didn't find enough workers to tend both of the fields. So he had to take all the workers and come and put them in one field. Just as this farmer needed workers so that his crops would not rot, we will see in today's lesson the same need for workers, but to prevent people from rotting in hell, no pun intended. Let's read God's word. Let's all turn to Matthew chapter 9. Verses 32. And the word of God says, As they were going out, a mute demon man, a mute demon possessed man, was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. And were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast, out he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being here tonight that we're able to study your word, meditate on your word, know the truths of your scripture that reveal who you are, God, and we thank you for this. I pray that as we learn your word and what you have to say, God, we can be sanctified by your words, Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being here together to fellowship, to learn about your word. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. For those taking notes, basically the outline is two scenes. Scene number one, two reactions. Scene number two, compassion for the lost. And an outline, basically, uh, the, the title is Jesus' Compassion for the Lost. Uh, a theme, central idea that we're going to focus on tonight. Because Jesus is compassionate, he commands us to pray for harvest workers. Because Jesus is compassionate, he commands us to pray for harvest workers. Anybody need me to repeat any of that so you can have that when you're small groups? I know that you guys use that, the theme and the outline of what we're talking about. What do you, what do you want me to repeat? The theme or the outline? So basically the theme, uh, outline is Jesus prepares to send his, out his disciples. And there's two scenes that we're going to look at today. Uh, scene one is the two reactions, and that's verse 32 through 34. And the second scene is compassion for the lost. And that's verses 35 to 38. The theme, yes, sir. Because Jesus is compassionate. He commands us to pray for harvest workers. So we know that last week, Chris took us through some miracles that were performed by Jesus, right? We know that uh, Matthew 8 through 9 talked about the different kinds of miracles that Jesus did. Can anybody tell me the different types of miracles that Jesus did that we've been discussing? Tell me one. He's a, so he has power over... Disease and sickness. Good. That's one. Another one. He has power over death as he resurrects the young girl that we talked about last. Well, that Chris talked about last time. Asher. Yeah. So he has power over over disease and sickness, disease and sickness, death. What else does he have power over? Demons. Demons right. The demonic world. Last one. What does he have power over? The elements. The elements of the, 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 our, our weather, the, the natural world. He has power over that. And we know why, why does Jesus perform these miracles? Because it, what does it do? What it, miracles in the Bible, what do they do? What do they do to the messenger that's doing them? Yes, they do give glory to God. But more specifically, they authenticate and they validate that that messenger is from God. Okay? So now we, we see this and now we're going to transition. So we're going to go in, in a shift from Jesus' sermon... Jesus' miracles, now he's going to, all that he has in place, all that he's learned, that he's uh, taught his disciples and all that he's shown them, now he's going to teach his disciples. And now they're going to do, and they're going out to, they're going to preach the gospel. They're going to go and preach the gospel of, of, of the kingdom of God, okay? And that's where we see ourselves right now. So let's, uh, let's start with the first scene of today's passage. Uh, two reactions, okay? Verse 32 as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. 
After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So verse 32, as they were going out, where were they going out out of? Well, the house of the young girl that, they, that Jesus just healed, okay? Um, demon possessions, sometimes they were characterized by the person not being able to talk or hear. And we see this in Luke eleven fourteen. And he was casting out a demon and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. We also see it in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 18. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And 18, when, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams out of, out of the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So that's a characteristic of sometimes of being demon possessed that you can't speak or hear. And then the Bible says were, was brought to him. Right? This demon-possessed man was brought to him. Who might have brought him to Jesus? Why would they have brought him to Jesus? Can anybody give me a guess of why they would have brought him to Jesus? As we learned all these contexts of what we're talking about in Matthew. Yes, ma'am, Sage? Okay, but why Jesus? How do they know? Yes, because that was his ministry in Galilee, right? People knew what he was doing. There were thousands of people that knew that Jesus was doing this. And we know that they're bringing it to him all the time because, hey, this is the only opportunity that I can get healed, that I can get uh, free from this demon oppression. So that's why they took him. So who brought him? We don't know. It could be relatives, friends, maybe neighbors, maybe even the two blind men that Jesus just healed, right? Now, let me ask you a question. When Jesus is in his ministry, were they coming to Jesus for who he was? Or were they coming to Jesus for what he could do? Joy? For what he could do. Okay, why? Because they just wanted healed. Okay, and think long term. Think when he's, when he's being crucified before that. When, he's, when, when people are scolding him and saying crucify him and stuff like that. If all the people that Jesus talked to throughout his ministries in three years, we're talking about millions of people that could have heard his message from him or his disciples. Well, if they were true disciples, if they were there for who he was, what would you have seen? They wouldn't have asked to crucify him. Or they would have, they would have stood by him, right? They would have been there. But it was very few toward that time that were actually disciples, right? That were actually, that actually made Jesus their Lord. Yes? They could have wanted to go to him. Yeah, that too. That too. But when it came down to it, and we're going to see this in a, in a second, no one was there. Even his disciples, some, uh, Peter denies him even three times. Now, let me, what do you, let me ask you the question. Do you come to Jesus for who he is or what, we can, or what he can do for you? This is something that we struggle with. This is something that we can understand. Do we come to a youth group? To see what we can get out of God's word so we can feel filled. Or do we come to youth group or Sunday to learn about God's word and know who he is? Right? It's, very, it's, a, it's a very thin line. And we want to make sure that we know what we do as believers. Right? We come to God for who he is. Never forget that. We, get to, we come to God for who he is. That, that he gives us grace. That he gives us these amazing lessons of truth through his word. Amen. That could 
make our life better and bless our lives, sure, that's a great blessing. But is it our motivation? Is that, is that it could become an idol in our hearts? Is that something that we want to always prevent? That we come to Jesus for who he is, not what he can do. Because if you know Jesus and who he is, the circumstances that you're going through, any situation that you're going through changes. When you understand that God is sovereign and he's seated on his throne and nothing happens by accident, you understand that whatever hard situation you're going for, instead of trying to see what you can get out of, what verses, what finger you can point the Bible to get you a verse to get you through the day, instead of, hold on a second, God is sovereign and God is good. And if he's sovereign and good, this is the best plan for me today. And I'm going to meditate on who he is. And by meditating on who he is and meditating on scriptures, like, do not be anxious for nothing, but in everything, be thankful with thanksgiving to the Lord. And that peace, will, that's what we do as believers. But it's knowing who God is that gives us the peace, not what he can do. Amen. Let's continue reading verses 33. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. The Greek for has been seen is to shine, appear, become manifest, come into view. Now, let me ask you a question. This miracle that Jesus just did, was it like in steps? Was it like today, first part, and then second part tomorrow, and then the third part the next day because it was so strong that he couldn't get him out? How, what, how was this miracle? Just like every miracle that Jesus does. They're there on the moment. They're instant. They don't take time. He's powerful enough to do so right there and then. So, one of the reactions was amazement. Reaction number one. Remember, two reactions. This reaction number one, amazement. They were amazed. They were wow. They've been amazed. They were amazed all these days that Jesus was there preaching the gospel, you know, preaching the kingdom of God and healing and taking out these demons and telling the storm to come. They were amazed. And we know that, again, part of these miracles are to authenticate, authenticate. And we're going to see what he's going to authenticate, right? Later on, he's going to give a message to his disciples. He's going to, in chapter 10, he's going to send them out. And, and his disciples needed to know, hey, trust me what I'm saying, because look, I'm from God. And if we know and look in our Bibles, because the majority of, you know, the Jews that, that, that were studied, that they studied their, their Torah, they studied the law, they knew that when they saw miracles in the Bible, it was because God was authenticating and validating a messenger. Let's turn to the second reaction. So the first reaction was amazement. What about the second reaction? Verse 34. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Ruler here in the Greek means the supernatural being besides God acting in a ruling or commanding capacity, either good or evil in the Greek. So the Pharisees saw the same miracle that the people who were amazed saw. The people who were amazed were like, wow, we've never seen this before. The Pharisees were like, huh. He does that because he's the ruler of the demons. You see the stark reaction to the same miracle at the same time? Why? Why would they say that? Why would they react that way? My son asked me this the other day. He goes, 
Dad, why do people believe in evolution? And I told him, well, the same reason why the Pharisees would say that Jesus was performing the miracle or taking out those demons as a ruler of the demon. This is what I mean by it. See, if the Pharisee would acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and would have been amazed, that means that the Pharisee would have had to change everything that he knew to be was right. He had a way of thinking that I am good because I do this. I can get to God my own way. I don't want to make Jesus my Lord. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to make every excuse I can to make sure that he is not Lord. Same thing with people who don't believe in God or believe in evolution in the sense the reason why people don't believe in God is not really on the science because we can go on on the science and we can debate it and we can, we can have good arguments. The real reason is that they don't want to bow their knee to anyone because if God is true, because if the resurrection is true, that means that the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, that means that there's a God who gives the moral law for us to follow. Therefore, they would have to submit to that law, but they don't want to because they think that their life, that their kingdom is better than Christ. Does that make sense? No? Uh, yes? I'll, I'll repeat it again. The reason why the Pharisees would say something like this is kind of to keep their lifestyle, to keep what they were doing, to keep their false power, their false standard of salvation. They didn't want to make Jesus their Lord. And that's why they say he takes them out because he's the ruler. And that's why people say oh, there's no God because they don't want to, because if there is a God, that means that they would have to change. And they will have to come do and obey the Lord and, and, and you know want to honor him. They don't want to do that. They want to live for their selfish desires and what makes them feel good. This also occurs so that Jesus' followers could see that following Jesus will come with a price. As we begin to study chapter 10, you will see in the following verses, especially in Matthew 10, 24 to 25, it says. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he became, it is enough for the disciple that he became like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Saying Jesus in chapter 10, he's going to send out his disciples and he's going to tell them, look, if they called me the son of God, the ruler of demons, how much more do you think they're going to call you for being a follower of me? Okay, so another reason why, you know, um, that they say this to Jesus and that Jesus uses this to, to teach his disciples. And let me ask you a question. How many of you thought the first reaction when you read the Pharisees' reaction, how many of you thought, Man, how could they even do that? Can't believe them. Be honest. What do we just do there? What do we just do, right? We, we became the Pharisee at that moment. We're judging. Instead of having eyes of grace, we have eyes of judgment, of condemnation. We got to stay away from that. They too need Jesus. Our friends need Jesus. Our neighbors need Jesus. Our friends who don't go to biblical churches, they need Jesus. They do not need us being, uh, can't believe it. Oh, he's so lost. Oh my goodness. Can't, what a sinner. Don't ever forget where we came from. We were like them. And we judge so much Pharisees in the Bible. And we have the tendency of becoming them if we don't check constantly our hearts. 
and our reactions to these situations. When someone's in sin, we're not going to ignore it. Obviously, in love, we're going to exhort and we're going to try to help. But let, never let your heart go to that judgment, being judgmental, thinking that you're better. Because where did we come from? Just like they, just like them. We could have been the Pharisees, right? So after several miracles that have been presented in chapters 8 and 9, the crowds had two reactions, amazement and disbelief. When the crowds were presented with the truth, they either were amazed and believed in God, or they were rebellious in their disbelief because they did not want to make Jesus their Lord. This is also the world. We want the benefits of Jesus without making him Lord of our lives. I don't know if you experienced this. Maybe, maybe you have. Everyone, when you say, oh, God bless, or I will believe in God, and everyone loves God, right? But the moment you mention Jesus, right? And the moment you mention the truth behind what Jesus speaks and the word, all of a sudden, that's what makes people cringe. And that's when they're like, well, not really. Because everyone wants to say, yeah, God is love, right? God is great. And all, all roads lead to one God, right? But when you start saying, no, 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 not all, not all roads lead to one God. There's only one way to one God, and that's through Jesus. That makes people uncomfortable, right? In the name of Jesus. Jesus, the triune God, 100% man, 100% God. Everyone loves the message of love. But when, when you go into what Scripture says and what the truth is, that's when you cause people, and that's when they're like, ah, I don't want to make him my Lord. I believe in him, but I, I don't want to make him my Lord. Now, always, my question to you, right? Every time. What do you do with these truths that we learn about here in, in, in youth group and on Sunday school, right? What do we do with these truths? Are we going to ignore them, thinking that they're going to go away? Or are we going to make them a reality and say, just, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. Yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. And I bow my will, I bow who I am to you. Let's move on to the second scene of this passage. The second scene, compassion for the lost. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Cities and villages. Anybody want to guess what cities and villages this is happening in? That we've been talking about? Galilee. Yes, thank you very much. Galilee, you are correct. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, or about 200 cities and villages in the area of Galilee. And about 15,000 per city or town. Give or take 3 million people living in them could have had contact with Jesus or some of his disciples. So it's a lot of people that he's going about and doing this. It's not just a couple. It's a lot of people. Teaching in their synagogues. What does that mean? Well, what was a synagogue for the Jewish person at the time? Yes, sir. Okay. It, that was one of the functions that it served. What else? What other functions would the synagogue serve, serve during the time if you're a Jew? Yes? It's a place where you go to hear the scripture read. To yeah, that's what, he, that's what, that's what um, um, Ian said. It was basically like a, uh, a community center, right? Courthouse. It was the fellowship where you go and Meet with your neighbors and, and debate and, and talk about godly things and, 
That was the synagogue, right? And in the synagogues, they had something called Freedom Synagogue. Basically, what Freedom Synagogue was, they, were, they allowed a qualified man to give an exposition on Scripture. And sometimes it was a visiting rabbi from another town that they would give this honor to. And Jesus and, the, and his apostles used this avenue to preach the gospel. And one of them was when, when he's reading Isaiah, he finishes saying, and I am the fulfillment of this scripture. Amen. What was the gospel of the kingdom, guys? What? So he's saying, he's saying he's going, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What have we been talking about? What gospel, what kingdom is Jesus talking about here? Savannah? His eternal kingdom, his spiritual kingdom. Yes. And what is he saying about this kingdom? What was he saying about the kingdom? He was telling him to believe in what, this, what he's saying. To believe. Not only was he proclaiming it, but he was also what? He was both the entrance to this kingdom and who else? And what does he do in this kingdom? If the theme of Matthew is what? Jesus is. So what is he doing in this kingdom? He's ruling. So he is the way to the kingdom. And he's also ruling in this kingdom. However, this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Right? What were the Jews thinking? Under the Roman oppression. That he was the Messiah that was going to what? Free them. Save them. Right? But we know that yes, he did come to save. But was it a physical salvation? It was a spiritual salvation, a spiritual kingdom. So to validate his words, as true, he performed the divine miracles we've been talking about. And again, Matthew's theme is Jesus King. He keeps on emphasizing all these miracles to convince the Jewish reader, hey, this is the Messiah. But except the Messiah that you're looking at, you're thinking about is not of a physical realm, but a spiritual realm. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus of Scripture. This is the Jesus of Isaiah. This is the Jesus that we've learned about in our, in our, in our time when we read the Scriptures. Believe me, and look, I can prove it to you because I saw all these miracles and wonders that would validate who He is. The work of proclaiming and healing could have been done by Jesus alone. He was God. He was man. But in His grace... He allows us to share the process of proclaiming this kingdom. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought the, 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 the in God's plan for redemption, right? For people to be saved, guess who he chooses in this plan? Who does he choose? To be an instrument in salvation. Everyone should be, this is like super easy, guys. Who does he choose? What? Us. Yes, us. Right? Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You don't save, the gospel saves, but somebody has to preach it. You, me, we have to preach it. God uses us to preach the gospel, and when the gospel is preached, that's when the Holy Spirit takes you from death to life and gives you the gift to believe in God. And in His grace, we're part of that. We're in that. You didn't have to. You could have done it totally different. But He decided to use us. 
And what a privilege it is to serve our king, the king of kings of this kingdom, right? And the way to serve him is through the preaching of the gospel. And this is important to Jesus for, let's read the next verse, Matthew 9, uh, 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. The Greek here for he felt compassion is, it reads, to be affected deeply in one's inner being, especially in the aspect of bowels, characterized by sympathy and compassion. So this felt compassion is not, oh, I feel compassion. No, this is life-changing moment where it's in your gut that this compassion comes out of. And why did he feel this compassion for them? Because why were they distressed? Which is to be grievously affected or dispirited, to be rejected, conceived as being thrown away. What was causing this distress and making them dispirited for Jesus to have compassion? Anybody want to give it a shot? Why, was, why did Jesus feel this compassion? So after, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, after seeing all the need of the people, right? After miracle, after miracle, Ministry day after ministry day, long hours, he's there. Why does he feel compassion for them? There's two reasons why he feels compassion. Can anybody give me one? Yes, sir. Yeah, loves people. Yes, he does love people, right? He loves them to the point where he doesn't want them to what? Perish in eternal separation from him. Hell, yes. He asked him, one of the reasons he asked him, Pastor, is because he sees, he sees the need of saving them because they cannot save themselves. Yes? What's the second reason why he feels his compassion? Context clues, distressed and dispirited. Who is causing this distress on them? Good shot. Huh? Okay. That's a good, that's a good uh, guess, but no, not their conscience. Somebody else that had a weird consciousness that were, yes, the Pharisees. Yes, the Pharisees. Why? Why would it? he's feeling compassion? Because these people are under bad teaching, under bad leadership. He's feeling compassion. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that the people that are shepherding them are blind themselves. What does a shepherd do, guys? What does a shepherd do? What does shepherd do? Taylor, what does a shepherd do? Um, which shepherd? Like a, like a real shepherd. Okay, a shepherd guides his sheep. Guides. What else does he do? Noel. Protects them. Protects them. What else does he do? Feeds he feeds them. What else does he do? Leads them. Huh? Leads them. Leads them. Yes. What else? He puts them back, puts them back on their feet when they fall. Uh, yes. All these things, right? All these things is what a shepherd does. Don't get distracted. Listen up. Jesus was literally sickened by the poor leadership of Israel's hypocritical religious leaders. Now, what were they doing? Matthew chapter 23. 
Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 23 real quick. And we're going to skip verses here and there. So you kind of see what the Pharisees were doing. We already know what the Pharisees were like. We've seen them. We've, we've heard about them. We sometimes are Pharisees. So, you know, let's repent from that. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulder, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and, a, for a, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you receive greater condemnation. This Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as a son of hell as yourselves. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. 26. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you all like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but in the inside they're full of, of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself. That you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then me and measure the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brutal vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So we know what kind of Jesus thinks about the Pharisees. Okay? And this is why he feels compassion. I think Jesus would probably say the same thing about today's preachers. Those that preach light gospels. Those that don't preach the truth, that don't preach the word, those that add things to the gospel, those that don't, that reject the deity of Christ as 100% man and 100% God. And these churches are filled with thousands of followers. Thousands. This is the compassion that Jesus felt. False teachers, false leaders leading and shepherding his people. But he has a solution. Let's read the following. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He said this to his disciples, his intimate group. The harvest has had many interpretations. It most likely means final judgment. We see passages like Isaiah 17. Verse 10 through 11, everyone go to Isaiah chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, 
and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. In the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. And in the morning you bring your seed to blossom. But the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickling, sicklessness and incurable pain. And obviously we have, we're going to talk about this in the, in the future. Uh, Matthew 13 verses 24 to 32. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But then the wheat sprouted and bore again, and the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came in and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to then go to and gather them up? But he said, No, for a while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The Lord has compassion because he knew the direct consequences people would face if they didn't believe and repent. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the same compassion for the lost? Do you know where your neighbors are going, your family members are going, if they don't have Christ? Do you pray relentlessly for their salvation? Have you preached the gospel to them? These are all questions that we all should be asking ourselves, including myself. And we should all be praying for this. Praying that in the, in the verse that we're going to look at, that God sends people to the harvest, but also that we are that answer to the prayer. So there are a few workers back then, probably a few workers today, but they can be increased by God's provision and power, which takes us into our final verse, verse 38. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Beseech means to beg for something. Our job is to beg God to send workers into the harvest. For God, going out to the lost is important. It's a command. He not only tells them or us to pray for workers, but then in the following verses, He sends them in chapter 10. He not only tells them to pray for the workers, but also to be the worker. Guys, it's very simple. This is something that is important to God. And if it's important to God, it has to be important to us. There are a lot of, there's a lot of harvest. People waiting to become disciples of Christ. Eagerly waiting. They just need somebody to preach it to them. Yes, we pray for God to send workers and we pray for missionaries to do their work and we pray that they're bold in what they do in preaching the gospel. We pray that, they, that the Lord provides for them and their family. We pray that if they're, that if they're homesick, that they can, they can be comforted by the Holy Spirit and knowing what they're doing is for the Lord. That we can pray politically 
That we can know that, that that politically that, that God can open the doors in those countries for the gospel to be proclaimed. Amen. And yes, let's do this. And every day we can, and every time we think of missionaries, we do so. But we also have to be the answer to our prayers as well. What do I mean by that? I mean, let's say you want a job. You're praying to God that gives you to give you a job. And you just sit the whole day watching TV or playing video games, <laughs> waiting miraculously for someone to call you and offer that job that you've always been waiting for. See, God doesn't work that way. You ask for God that he will provide, but you have to do your part. We pray for God to send the workers, but we also have to do our part in what? In preaching the gospel and sharing the good news. And I conclude with this. Three applications, three points of application. Number one, are you amazed at God for who he is or for what he can do? There are only two reactions to the gospel. Submission or rebellion? Please consider this question, especially if you receive this truth repeatedly every Wednesday and every Sunday and every time your parents have preached the gospel to you, this truth is surrounding you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What are you going to do with this truth? Are you going to be like the Pharisees making excuses, not bowing down and making him your Lord? Are you thinking just believing is enough? That's not enough. James 2.9 says what? Even the, even the demons believe and tremble. It's part of it. But it's making Jesus your Lord. It's calling out. It's seeing your condition as a sinner in need of a Savior. And calling out to the Lord to save you. You can't save yourself. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's believing. It's repenting. Turning away from your sin and making Him Lord of your life. Second application point. Are we following the example or are we obeying the command of preaching the gospel? Are we praying for those that are lost? Is it important to you like it is important to God? And finally, the last point of application, are we praying to God for God to send workers to the lost? The Holy Spirit convicts you. If you if you claim Christ and you call yourself a believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you of our sin. Convicts us of our sin. When you ignore certain commandments because you think it doesn't pertain to you, you're sinning before a holy God. You can't say I'm too young because now you're in youth group. There's a reason why you don't go to Sunday school anymore with kid teachers. You went from milk and now you're learning and you're, and you're eating meat and solid food. The Lord is going to demand that from you. You don't just come to youth group because, hey, it's just the next step. No, you come to youth group because you're maturing as an individual and you should be maturing in your walk with Christ. And things like, and, and lessons like these should cause you to say, wow, Lord, yes, I have to be better at preaching the gospel. But I don't know how. That's not an excuse. We have little booklets in the church. That you can memorize 
four steps, memorize those verses. You can guide this. You can guide somebody with the gospel that way. You have the the bracelets. They helped me the other day. One of my uh, one of my employees. We were having the, like the annual like a like a pre-conference for their uh, I guess what what we're gonna evaluate on on their on their appraisal of work. She was like, oh, yeah, I enjoy working here. And I'm, what else are you like? Oh, yeah, I think that when you mention God, I'm like, oh, what do you mean? I went to, yeah, when you mention God and, and your worldview, I think it's, I think I, I'm glad to be here because it's, it's I think I want to get closer to God. And I'm like, okay, since you brought it up, not me, what is the gospel? I, I was going to take advantage of it. I'm not, I, I'm not going to go and tell her, hey, let's, let me tell you about the gospel because I, I can get fired. But if they come to me and ask, <laughs> I'm going to take, I'm going to take advantage of it. And I went through it and we walked through it, you know, one, two, three, you know, it's very simple. It's a very simple way to learn the gospel. God is holy. He is, he is a creator. He, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's, he's the owner of everything. He makes the rules. He wants us to obey. But what happens? We sinned. The black. We disobeyed God. Can never be with God ever again due to this sin. The, 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 it's perfection that God requires, and we're never going to be perfect. But the good news is that his blood, which is red, his, him dying on the cross for our sins, Made us right with God. And if we put our faith only in Him, He forgives our sins and make us, makes us righteous before a holy God. And we will be with Him in eternity if we decide, if we believe and repent and make Him our Lord. Very simple. If you don't know how, talk to us. We'll teach you, right? We'll teach you how to do it. Talk to your parents. Oh my goodness. You want, you want your parents to really, really like, you want to bond with your parents? You want, to make, you want to make your parents' day? Go ahead and tell them, hey, Dad, do you think you can teach me how to preach the gospel? Oh, my goodness. For that, that'll be the best thing ever that your parents will be like, they'll start crying. <laughs> my kid wants to know how to preach the gospel. Don't do it because of that, but just they're, they're, they're willing to help you. Because guess what? We are responsible. You are responsible. Stop saying that you're little or stop saying that it's not for you. These messages are for you, are for all of us. Please have that in your mind when you come to youth group. To not think that, oh, this is not, this is not pertain to me. This is for my parents. This is for the high schoolers because they get high school fellowship night. No, no, this is for all of us. And I pray that this will be something in your mind, in your hearts, that, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit can, can move you inside and make you want to do this. Because, hey, guess what? He does. Right? Adults, parents, when you're, you know, at the checkout and you get that, you know, hey, why don't you preach the gospel? Oh, I don't have time, Lord. Well, why not? Well, you should have a little, little track. Hey, I don't have time right now, but, you know, this is a gospel track of my church. This is my email or my number. Read it. We can talk about it. Simple things like that. But it's always having that mentality. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks, Father, because you are a good God. Uh, thank you for the greatness that you do in revealing yourself through us, through your word. Thank you for the miracles that you did. We're in awe of you, Lord. We're in awe of your amazing grace. We're in awe of your holiness, of your sovereignty, of your power. We're in awe of you, Lord, and you are our Lord. We bow our knees to you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for allowing us to call you Lord, but also Father. Father, we also pray this morning 
this, this evening, Lord, that you can send workers to the harvest. That you can send workers to the harvest so they can preach your kingdom. That they can preach the gospel. That they can shepherd your people well, Father. Let us also be the answer to that prayer. That we can also preach the gospel to others. Give us that burden in our hearts to preach the gospel to others. Thank you for your word. As it sanctifies us. As it teaches us. It reproves us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness. Lord, we love you with all our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.